You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I've got the honor and privilege of interviewing Command Sergeant Major Robert Craven. Sergeant Major, thanks for being on The Spear. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm pumped up. What's your current job so that listeners get a sense of who you are? So my current job is the United States Corps of Cadets Command Sergeant Major. And this is the, the epitome of what fun is like in Army is being here at West Point. As the Command Sergeant Major for the Corps of Cadets at a military academy, what are your responsibilities? Wow, so my responsibilities, frankly, are to help educate, train, and inspire future commissioned officers to become leaders of character while living the tenets of duty on a country. In short, I get to pour in into future commissioned officers, and they get me unfiltered, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise. I hope that's helpful. That's you know, that's good. So you didn't just drop into this assignment, though. You've been in the Army for a while. How'd you wind up in the Army? Oh, so 1995, there I was in southwest Louisiana, a high school dropout. Um, I think the highest grade I really completed was the ninth grade. And I had a kid on the way, right? Um, I was the product um, of a teenage mother. And you could say that I was going down the same cycle. So the Army provided a venue and an opportunity for me to be all I could be. And that catchphrase kind of really resonated with me. Uh, my grandparents were raising me. I was heading on the wrong trajectory in life. And 26 years later, here I am at West Point. I've been a Sergeant Major for 10 years, married my high school sweetheart. Uh, my oldest son, who was that baby on the way, graduated from Louisiana State University. My second son is an electrician. My baby girl is 14 years old, and she lives with us. And my wife is a registered nurse, graduated from University of Oklahoma. A lot of things I left out because I think the most important thing is, is that, you know, your circumstances don't define your future in life. And the Army enabled me to really just live out a dream and live out a passion um, and to help inspire and impact people. And that's why I'm still here today. What did you come in the Army to do? Really? I didn't know at the time. I came in the Army thinking I was just going to kind of figure this thing out and I needed something that was sustainable as a future father, what I underestimated was how I would be impacted by total strangers who would forever become my brothers and my sisters. I complied with the Army, Army initially. They got me on the hook with, you know, hey, you'll have a job, you'll have a paycheck, and so on and so forth. But I became committed to the profession when I became a sergeant. 
Um, I moved from the compliance stage of, you know, monetary assets, what have you. I, I was dirt poor growing up. But then I bought into this theory of leadership and commitment and passion and caring about people. And I wanted to help unlock in others what others had in, unlocked inside of me. And that was raw potential shaped into something that could become tangible, clay. Um, and, and that's why I'm, I'm still here. I still believe in this institution. Along the way, what have some of your formative assignments been? So the 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault, Bastogne, 2nd 320th Field Artillery Regiment, that assignment formed me, all right? I could still remember my battalion commander and sergeant major and the NCOs that I had around me. I mean, I had sergeants who had 13 and 14 years in the Army and were Desert Storm veterans. That shaped me in a way that I really can't even articulate. I mean, teaching me field craft, teaching me how to, how to pack for the field, how to inspect I mean, those little things matter. The details and field stripping an MRE, understanding how to gut 550 cord, you know, type 3 nylon, understanding how to tie down your weapons and, and night vision devices, all the things that we kind of take for granted or you should not take for granted. You know, I was, we were taught those things at an early rank, grade, and position. And I've carried them through on in the rest of my military career so far. You in an artillery regiment? Artillery. Are you a cannoneer or are you a fire directionman? So I, I actually started off as a surveyor. Okay. 82 Charlie, field artillery surveyor. So we were responsible for determining the position, azimuth, and elevation of the firing battery to make sure that rounds fall safely. Then I transitioned and changed my MOS to a fire direction computer, or FDC. And it was a natural progression because I understood the elements of fire support and FDC uh, was a fun, fast-paced job, and you still got to put rounds on downrange, so I loved it. Highmar specifically. I want to go back to something you said earlier, and you were a high school dropout, yeah. and now you're doing complex math. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I know, right? The training pipeline, the development, the growth was clearly technical, right? I mean, we send you to MOS school, but right. how did the Army benefit you or, or, or build you as a thinker? Wow, that's a great question. I would tell you... Outstanding non-commissioned officers who were uh, our AIT instructors in, in uh, AIT. Because, man, you get to learn about Polaris Cochab and, you know, all these stars and constellations and celestial bodies and all this stuff, tracking the sun. Now, I wasn't a dumb kid. I was just lazy. And I dropped out of high school. And that, too, is a part of this story because the Army unlocked a passion inside of me to learn. Right? And so I ate it up. I mean, I'm looking for the North Star. I'm looking for Orion. I mean, you're looking at the Little Dipper, the Big Dipper, and, and understanding how to use constellations to navigate. That stuff was pretty interesting to me. You know, moreover, it could result in a lethal effect on a target. Shit, sign me up. So, yeah, and that speaks to being all you could be because the Army really did give me the opportunity to be that. A high school dropout is now a surveyor. That could have been a dangerous combination, but the Army really you know, got me groomed and polished to become a master at my craft. There's the technical side of the Army. You are, there's also the leadership side, a human side, a, an element of, of growth and maturation and turning around and being the equivalent of that AIT instructor. What was your development as an NCO that led to what is now 10 years as a Sergeant Major? Wow, I'll never forget one of my first NCOs, and, and he is no longer alive. His name was Sergeant James Harrell in the 101st, and I can remember we had to do a PMCS, Preventive Maintenance Checks and Services. Basically, you inspect your vehicle to make sure it's still serviceable. Well, Private Craven decided it would be a great idea to pencil whip the inspection worksheet, which is a 5988. 
And so there I am, pencil whipping deficiencies, you know, and I turn in my worksheet. And wouldn't you know it, the sergeant actually inspected my work. <laughs> so he inspects. He finds a whole bunch of deficiencies that I just overlooked. He brings me in. He counsels me. And he says, all right, Craven, so your corrective action or corrective training will take place this Saturday. And you will PMCS all of the M9 or 9 in the battery, which is about 50-51. I will be there, obviously, to inspect your work. Dude. I just wanted to do push-ups and get smoked. But here this man is taking of his own time. He even brought his son in. Had the audacity to not only inspect me as I inspected all these vehicles, gave me a lunch break and did an after-action review and discussed the activities of the day. I learned a valuable lesson that day. Number one, that NCO was not playing. Number two, leadership comes at a cost. It cost him time and effort and great family time to be in on a Saturday to retrain a young private who is frankly a dumbass, right? But number three, you invest in future leaders. That sergeant was also investing in me in that moment, right? And I didn't even understand it then, but I understood it now. He could have smoked me. He could have belittled me. But a behavior would not have been changed. He changed a behavior that day, right? Um, and I'm thankful for it. And I hope more NCOs would really understand that corrective training can be fruitful if it's done the right way. So a formative development for you as a leader happened as a private because of something you screwed up. Right. You've been a sergeant major for 10 years. You were a first sergeant before that and a master sergeant and, and, and a sergeant first class and all these NCO ranks. How have you taken what Sergeant Harold taught you those days and brought them forward? Wow, that's another great question. I guess, you know, in short, James Harrell taught me that everyone is salvageable. Every human being is entitled to dignity and respect. And as leaders, we are obligated to invest in our subordinates, our soldiers, right? You're just obligated to as part of this, the professional army ethic, right? Loyalty, integrity, duty, and selfless service, right? And I bought that hook, line, and sinker after living it. I saw that it worked. I saw that it worked on someone like me. And so as I progressed to each pay grade through the enlisted ranks and each assignment came with its own turbulence, right? It's issues and tough spots that I had to navigate, but it almost always comes back to that lesson that James Harrell taught me, right? And no matter the situation I navigate, I try to apply it as best as I can um, to try to invest and make every moment a teachable moment. You came in the Army before 9-11. Yes. How did the wars shift the Army from your perspective, and how did they change you? Wow, man, that's a great question. So I remember where I was on September 11th. Um, 2001, I was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I was a young staff sergeant. We were down in a motor pool doing digital sustainment training in our track vehicle for the FDC. And I can just remember hearing, yeah, we heard some planes flew into some towers. At that point, we thought maybe it was some sort of an incident or a flying mishap, but it became very apparent later on that day that this was an attack. Um, and we'll fast forward. The first time I deployed, I was a sergeant first class platoon sergeant. And this was to Afghanistan. It is my opinion that the peacetime army, if you will, of the 90s prepared us for OIF and for OEF. Why is that? Because during the 90s, 95 is when I came on and all the way through to 2001, we focused on combined arms maneuver. We focused on the elements, the essential elements of fire support. In short, we focused on the fundamentals. And in my opinion, it was the fundamentals that drove actions like the Thunder Run right? 
it was the peacetime army, if you will, that really drove home focus on PCIs and PCCs. And as we progressed into 2001 and the GWAT years, I'm not going to say those things or those skills atrophied, but you saw it took a different shape. Um, young men and women, captains and lieutenants were thrust in the midst of Afghanistan and Iraq and really had to make some no shit major decisions that you can't find the answers in a book for. Right. And it still affects some of these now colonels and lieutenant colonels till this very day. But the peacetime army, I think, in my opinion, brought us up into that point. Your first deployment was as a platoon sergeant. Right. You know, a lot of our listeners are cadets about to be lieutenants, lieutenants about to take their first platoons, or platoon sergeants about to meet their lieutenant for oh, the first yeah. time. What was that encounter like? And what was preparations for the deployment like? Wow. Preparations for the deployment. I was stationed at Fort Bragg then in a high Mars unit. And we were prepared, man, I will tell you. I mean, from table certifications, gunnery, if you will, um, all the pre-execution training for deployment, there was no doubt we were ready. Uh, my lieutenant at the time, Brandon Martin, <laughs> who's still in the Army, I love him. Um, we had a great relationship. It was almost like we were married, man. We would argue about shit, you know, and, and the platoon was pretty tight-knit, and we oversaw all the fire support operations for our part of the world in Afghanistan. But in that moment, it became very apparent to me that relationships matter. Not just platoon sergeant and platoon leader relationships, but your relationships with your soldiers. Because a lot of our men, and we I didn't have any women in the battery at that time, but all of our men, they were still growing up to a certain degree. And, and young marriages and all the stressors that come with being deployed and, and issues inside the marriage. And were it not for those relationships that we had in the platoon, I don't know that we all would have made it through those hardships that we had to face together, not just against an enemy, but also against things going on back home. People don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. I've heard that before, but I've also seen it played out in real time and real world experiences. You could be a West Point graduate and a Rhodes Scholar, and you can have every alphabet there is known to man behind your name, but have you not love inside your heart for the American soldier who will no doubt lay down his or her life executing your orders, then what do you really have? I say all you have is a diploma on the wall, a small token of something that you've achieved but have not yet lived inside the warrior's heart. And I know I just unpacked a lot for you, but that's why I'm still here, because I believe that that love still exists and it's essential for leadership and for leaders right now. People hear things like love and they think, oh, my God, there we go. There's this empathy thing. We're, we're getting weak. No, I think not. I push back on that. You can't conflate loving your soldiers with meaning uh, you're just, I'm just going to give you whatever you want. There's hard love. Love is enforcing the standard. Love is saying, hey, dude, button your chin strap. Freaking love you. Let's go. I mean, patting them on the back and getting them back into the fight. A commander and his soldiers have a love relationship, or they should. That commander loves these men and women so much that he will make sure that he has really analyzed his plan, he has mitigated and accounted for risk, and he will not commit these human beings to a mission unless he knows prudent risk has been accepted and that this is the right course of action. Now listen, we live in a, in a profession of inherent risk. I'm not saying you run away from it, but every commander should carry the burden of command and love in his or her heart for the safeguarding of the soldiers in their charge. Does that make sense? I'm a little passionate right now, man, my bad. 
What was that deployment like with Lieutenant Martin and with these soldiers that you loved? Oh, wow. That deployment was, everybody came back home. Thank God for that. Um, we were in, in different areas. So the main hub was in Bagram, Bath. Uh, we had folks in Jalalabad, Kandahar Airfield, Calf, um, and a place called Salerno. So the battery was split up with launches in different locations. Um, we had missions every night. Um, we were in support of a, of a special operations task force. And it was just a phenomenal deal, man. Like, I think it really hit me when you've done all these live fires with reduced range practice rockets, rippers are, as they're called, because it costs a lot of money to shoot real JTJ, that's GMLRS and Garrison, although we've done it a couple of times. But I'll never forget the night we processed our first mission. And I mean, the effects on target were just fucking lethal. And I'm thinking, damn, this shit really works. <laughs> um, you know, we went through the whole battle drill, the progressions, you know, clearing airspace, all the nine yards. And it was akin to throwing a touchdown, uh, a touchdown in a football game, man. Like that ball went up into the air and now it's the missile in this incident. And it landed, I mean, within three meters of the target, man. 500 pounds. It's an ATAC. Shit is destroyed. And we're high-fiving, hey, good freaking job. But why were we happy? We were happy because we executed our craft to perfection, I think, in our opinion. No collateral damage. Freaking the enemy is destroyed. And we enable the commander to have more options for the next objective. Man, that's what you sign up for, right? We had practiced all this time, all these years, and now here we are in the game or in the fight, right? Leading the way for young rangers on the ground and conventional forces. And I mean kicking some ass bro i mean a high mars is a pretty lethal machine i don't know if you know <laughs> but it, it was also empowering right and liberating knowing that my young specialist who was on the afa tads my essentially the man who sends all the missions to the launcher he was on it dude brandon martin the lt is clearing airspace with the kayak right pushing aircraft out of the uh, gun target line I'm in the middle on a crest clearance tool, making sure making sure we don't have reverse slope issues in the mountainous terrain and making sure we don't violate Pakistani airspace as well. And the shit all came together and it was freaking beautiful. Um, and so that gave us more confidence, right? So it, it was just a beautiful thing to live and experience. But that deployment was a great one, in my opinion. This was 07 to 08. Yeah, 07 to 08. Um, and I think we had a, a really successful deployment. The battery was disaggregated, right? You've got launchers at different positions, and being in a HIMARS unit, you've got the FDC kind of wrapped in with the guns, so there's not really a headquarters platoon and a guns platoon. You're a little independent firing Absolutely. units. Absolutely. How did that impact your perception of leadership, and did you run into issues with, I mean, for lack of a better term, folks going off the reservation? Yeah, leadership matters, man. So, yeah, we were just dispersed all over the AOR. Um you had a platoon leader and a platoon sergeant in all three of those locations. I was the senior platoon sergeant at that time. The dynamics and makeup of a HIMARS battalion or battery is a little bit different from an art, a traditional artillery. And that each platoon sergeant is a senior sergeant first class. I was a platoon sergeant, but I'm also the battery operations NCO. And by default, the senior NCO of all the song first class is just underneath the first sergeant. So I'm privy to a lot of things. There were moments in that deployment where I will just say the battery leadership um, maybe was not as present at some locations that, as they should have been. When leadership is not present, bad things happen, all right? Um, at one of the locations, we had a platoon sergeant, a platoon leader, and they were really going at it, right? They had gotten off 
the reservation, so to speak. Bad habits begin to emerge. Um, it's very apparent inside the platoon that there's a rift between the platoon leader and the platoon sergeant. At its height, it looked like a fist to cuff between a commission officer and an NCO, and there were some power dynamics going, you know, at play. And soldiers were starting to choose sides. And a decision had to be made. Like, you can't just leave these men and women, and I think they did have a couple of women in there, support folks. You couldn't just leave these men and women alone and unafraid with these soft elements, and it became the Lord of the Flies. And I hadn't got that bad yet, but the indicators were that it was going to get that close. Um, my first sergeant made some trips down there. The first sergeant would later leave, and I would become the first sergeant later on in that deployment. And we had to go and inspect what was going on. And what was going on was two leaders who were at, at odds with each other over the most petty shit. I mean, everything from not doing PT to freaking locking up refrigerators and this is my coffee, this is your drink. We're wearing civilian clothes. Some are freaking growing beards and you're not authorized to do that stuff. Everyone is trying to choose their own adventure. Leadership is no ointment that will change that shit. And there was not enough presence going on across the, the the AOR to inspect and to make sure that people were living the standards. But there's one thing I can impress here today is that never expect what you don't inspect. You can't expect a good outcome if you don't inspect that there's going to be one. You can't expect that people are doing the right things if you don't inspect with an I-N-S-P-E-C-T. I think that's right. When you don't inspect and show up and see if living conditions are all right, how the morale is, if people are doing PT, if customs and courtesies are waning. In that moment, it became very apparent that we were starting to fail in our presence because presence matters. Where a commander or where a leader is, where their presence is, you're dictating a message. You're sending a message that things are important to you or they're not by your lack of presence. I want to go and analyze your role real fast as the senior sergeant first class. You know, in a traditional battery, that you'd be the smoke? Yeah, smoke. Did you have a you you mentioned a sense? What kind of a sense did you have that this that your sister platoon was starting to go down a dark path, or was it a, a bit of a surprise? It was a bit of a surprise. I mean, small things like everyone's supposed to check in every day. Basically, um, you have weekly sit reps to what's going on. It starts subtle. First, there's non-responsive. Okay, what the hell's going on? You're missing time hacks. Then it's you notice certain. Uh, tasks are supposed to be getting accomplished and the report is due up to us. They become to get late. Every day a report is late. And then you start hearing stories because soldiers talk and, and rumors get back whether you're in Salerno or Bath, it doesn't matter. And I think it all came to a head where like no shit over the radio one day, man, you could almost hear like a fight is, is, is people are yelling and screaming and shit. And we're like, what is going on? The commander starts to do some inspecting and some digging as did the first sergeant as well, and, and we figured out that, yeah, there's a power dynamic going on now, down there. People not wearing uniforms. Um, some people, we work for soft, we weren't soft, but people want to be soft, or what they thought soft-like was, meaning I'm going to grow my beard out. We're out with these dudes anyway. They don't fucking care about us. We can do what the hell we want to do. Well, the thing is, if you're not getting resources that you need, instead of trying to be the mayor of your own fob, you should, A, reach out to the higher leadership that's around you, or B, reach out to your higher headquarters so we can help you out. And those are some of the activities and actions that were taking place. And when it got to a point where we figured out the platoon leader, platoon sergeant, were like locking up refrigerators, not talking to each other, that's no bueno, man. Like, we really had to intervene. 
And I had to have a, a pretty stark conversation with a peer of mine. Um, and it was a hurtful conversation for both of us because we loved each other dearly. But the, the bottom line with the conversation was like, dude, this is not how you run this shit. I mean, you and the LT have got to fucking come together because right now the platoon is falling down around you. And it is affecting the battery and it's affecting our readiness, quite frankly. We owe it to American soldiers to live professionalism. No one said perfect, but you still have to display what professionalism is about. And discipline, you can't get back physical fitness or discipline when it's time to deploy. You can't buy that shit. If you don't build it before you deploy, it's too late to get it when you're downrange. And we were starting to lose discipline and even some physical fitness to a certain degree. When you became the first sergeant, what guidance did the company commander give you or what did, you know, advice did the outgoing first sergeant give you about how to deal with this platoon? The outgoing first sergeant, like, yeah, he took like another job. There was really no guidance. He was gone. Um, we were kind of surprised to see him leave in the middle of the deployment. I'm not faulting him for it. He had a new job opportunity. He was about to retire and he moved on. The battery commander was a good man, a solid man. I still know him to this day. Um, he didn't give me much guidance per se with, with respect to that specific platoon. Quite frankly, because he knew I had a long term, a long tenure in the battery and I knew the power dynamics very well. For me, it was about confronting a friendship with a fellow platoon sergeant that was becoming threatened by his actions. You know, and he and I are still good friends to this day and we had a conversation about it. But that was the hardest part for me as such a young Sergeant First Class. I was like 28, 29 at that point, and then I would become a first sergeant. Like, the leadership manuals don't teach you how to navigate that space. One minute you're buddies, now you're in charge of your buddies. That's a whole nother dynamic. Talk about peer leadership, right? But you're thrust into that position. Ain't a leader book, leadership book known to man that will cover in paragraph 5-8 how you tackle this problem set. You got to figure it out. Um, and I think we did that for the most part. I will tell you, when we deployed or redeployed back to home station, one of the young men working for me did a phenomenal job. Um, and I think the hardest thing I had to do was later on chapter him out of the Army for failure to meet weight standards. And that was rough for me, right? Because you're talking about a stellar warrior who just really produced on the battlefield. But yet he didn't have enough discipline to stay fit. And I'll be honest, in a moment of transparency, I gave him more chances than he was allowed because I felt guilty. Because this man had essentially saved my career on a fire mission that had almost went wrong. He caught the mistake. I didn't. We corrected it, and we got lethal effects on target. How do you kick someone out of an army that does that? What leadership book exists that will give you the answer to that question? There is none. The regulatory guidance says he was only supposed to have two chances. I gave him four. Why did you do that? There's no way I could reconcile kicking this man out who was only 2% over body fat. I couldn't reconcile how I would kick him out after all the good things he did for God and country, not just me, over a freaking Krispy Kreme donut. Later on, we would eventually chapter him from the Army. I carried that on me. But at one point, I confronted him, and I'm like, dude, why did you put me in this position? Right? Why am I now feeling guilty about separating you from the Army because you can't control your eating habits? He and I are still very good friends to this day. Uh, not long, some years back, he said, you know, Sergeant Craven, I was kind of playing you a little bit just because I knew how you felt about me professionally. He knew I adored him. And he was adored in a battery, quite frankly. People loved him. 
that was a hard decision. Some will tell you I did the wrong thing, and maybe I did from a regulatory guidance perspective, but such is the burden of leadership that you have to navigate spaces and make decisions that there is no apparent answer for. I would do it again, quite honestly, because I watched that young man perform with valor on the battlefield, with competence, technical skills that were unmatched. And yeah, he showed a moment or a tenure of indiscipline by not abiding with 600-9, but he also saved lives on the battlefield. Of that, there is no doubt. So I don't know if that's right or wrong, if I'm going to get beat up for the decision that we made. I mean, I didn't make it alone. A commander's in charge of me as well. We all knew what he had done on the battlefield. So this conversation took place. But I tell you, that was a difficult moment for me. I hope that kind of... You alluded to it earlier that leadership is a human endeavor. Yep. Right? You, you've, there's no paragraph in these books. How do you, as a senior enlisted advisor and as a senior enlisted leader and somebody that you know, both enlisted and officers look up to, how do you teach that? I don't know that you teach it in as much as you live it, right? Um, if you want an effect, you have to A, show what the result is going to be, and B, model the behavior, right? Now, I'm not sitting here telling you Robert Craven is a perfect man, but what I am saying is there's three lines in my, in my head unethical, illegal, or immoral. If I'm not crossing those lines, man, and that means we've got a lot of latitude and a lot of grace to give soldiers. Unethical, illegal, immoral. Those are boundaries for me. Is it unethical? Is it illegal? Is it immoral? And I have been placed in some ethical dilemmas. I mean, I just laid one out for you, right? But that is such a gray area that I would bet some listeners would say, yeah, I would have done that. Or some would say, nah, he was clear. He was, he was out of sorts, man. He wasn't in, in the courts of regulation to each his own. But leadership is a practice, just like medicine and just like law. I got a GED. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a freaking attorney. But I would think most doctors and attorneys would tell you, this prescription does not fit all patients. This case law does not, is not applicable to all juries and all cases that should be tried. Hence, you got to practice what you preach. You have to add a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You have to look for resources. Surround your, yourself with sage counsel. And that's the thing I've been blessed with, man. I have been blessed with leaders who have invested in me and people who are willing to tell me, hey, Robert, you're fucking up. You're reading your own fan mail. You're not the biggest dude in the room bring the ego down. That's important. Even as a senior sergeant major, I had a, a mentor tell me, he's like, Rob, um, your passion is a double-edged sword. He's like, because your passion is obviously what drives you and you take care of soldiers. And then his next point was so striking to me. He's like, but at times your passion clouds the very message that you're trying to articulate on behalf of soldiers. And you come off as an emotional leader. And he was like, at this level as, as a CSM, you can't be seen as an emotional leader tied up to a COA that you just want to promote. Man, that was striking because he was right. Because I have this passion inside of me and I want to pound the table and say, no, this is wrong. You need to hear me. But in that moment, I forget what's more important, the message or the impact to the soldiers. And sometimes I couldn't square the two. You know, it was all about winning a fight or wanting to be right. I'm trying to grow beyond that. I'm 47 years old. I'm not trying to be right. I do want to do the right thing. I think there is a difference. I think we as leaders struggle with that sometimes. 
I think we as leaders struggle with validation. We struggle with insecurities. We struggle with transparency because we have this delusion of what transparency should be and how transparent are we to be. I mean, this leadership thing is complicated, man. And we can paint ourselves into a corner sometimes if we don't acknowledge the imperfect parts of being a leader. All that shit in the book is cool to read. But when you're living it in real time, shit ain't easy. That's why people get out. <laughs> you know? You mentioned being an emotional leader. Earlier, you mentioned love. How do you square? How do you reconcile those things on a daily basis? I know, right? Um, because how do you lead with love and not be emotional? I know, right? How do you, how do you help coach your commander to a decision without, without being emotionally wedded to a decision that you know impacts soldiers? I think delicately. But I think authentically, too, because even though that that sergeant major who is still in the army today gave me that advice and I did take it, I am more cognizant of my emotions now than I've ever been. I try to be self-aware and I try to tamper down my emotions when my general is asking me to weigh in on some things that are pretty significant. Because you know what? That's that's prudent, I think. You know, it's the right thing to do. But I also know that I can't suppress these emotions, too, and, and risk run the risk of becoming stoic, unempathetic, and a company man, quotation, you know? Because as NCOs, we're not company men or women. We're honest brokers. You are the advocate for an enlisted soldier. And I'll take it a step further. The creed of the non-commissioned officer says, and I quote, all soldiers are entitled to outstanding leadership. I will provide that leadership. Soldiers irrelevant of the pay grade, the rank, the status in life, whatever. All soldiers are entitled to outstanding leadership. So we have to be honest, honest brokers when advising a commander at any echelon. Going back to that deployment to Afghanistan, your first experience as a first sergeant, what lessons did you take out of that that resonate today? Um, that your presence matters, that relationships matter, that modeling the behavior that you expect out of people is essential. And look, I haven't been perfect, but every day you strive towards a mark. Showing that you care about people matters. I mean, not so much as knowing the regulation and everything else. I mean, these soldiers see everything that we do. We live in a glass house, man, and people see you, they assess you, they talk about you. I mean, people will talk good and bad about you whether you want them to or not. You've heard this whole thing of leadership or likership. For a moment, I struggled with that as a young NCO. I mean, you're talking to someone. I, was, I became a sergeant major when I was 37. I'm 47 now. I've been a sergeant major for 10 years. That's not super young, but it is pretty damn young to be a battalion CSM. Um, and one of my battalion commanders, who I will name, uh, Colonel Kevin Capra, West Point Class of 95, um, I remember when he counseled me as his battalion command sergeant major. And his counseling was so awesome, man. But one part of it stood out, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. He basically said, as my senior enlisted advisor, I expect you to play an active role in the professional development of junior company grade officers. Wow. I'm like, what? He just empowered me. He just empowered me to mentor and shape future commissioned officers. My brother, I took that and I ran with it. And so I'm going to kind of call out my peers and say, all soldiers are entitled to outstanding leadership. I will provide that leadership, whether it's a captain, a lieutenant, a colonel, a sergeant, a private. If a young lieutenant cannot approach his or her command sergeant major for advice and guidance, I feel sorry for them. 
Because as a sergeant major, a lieutenant outranks me. But here's where a conversation is beautiful. There are barriers that don't exist with me and a lieutenant because I'm not in a rating chain. That conversation hits differently from a battalion commander to a lieutenant who will be standing at attention and, oh my God, my senior rater is in my face. Whereas the beauty of being an NCO is we have the latitude to say, hey, LT, come up in here. Let's have a talk. Sit down, man. Let's have some coffee. Check this out. On the live fire last week, was not good. If I were you, here's what you need to fix. And oh, by the way, the boss could be watching. Now, how do you think that conversation unfolds with a battalion commander and a lieutenant? That lieutenant is probably paralyzed. You know what I mean? Like that lieutenant is hung up on the barrier that exists between, oh my God, this is my battalion commander. NCOs need to embrace that role and lean into it. And I will acknowledge it has gotten better with age and time because I have the benefit of hindsight. But I've always been the leader that you see sitting opposite from you. Just back then, I had a little less experience. But thank God for the crucible, man, the crucible of life, the hardships. I mean, I got stories for days. I share it with these cadets all the time because I think it's important that they know that your true character is revealed in those times of hardness, those times of harsh environments, those times when you feel challenged. And I'm not sitting here today that I need to win some freaking character awards because I probably don't. But I think I've tried to do the right thing at the right times. Sergeant Major, as we go to wrap up, what takeaways have you had? What takeaways would you offer our listeners about being a leader of character, developing those around them, loving without getting emotional? Well, man, that's a great question. Um, first, I just want to say I obviously didn't graduate from West Point, but this job has been one of the most professionally rewarding in my life. I just had a, a session with the firsties, the seniors, who will be the class of 23, and they will lead America's sons and daughters. I tell the Corps how much I love them. And, when, and what I'm going to say next isn't my own words. I got it from CSM Mike Coffey, who was the USMA Command Sergeant Major, so the Superintendent Sergeant Major. But he said something that, that resonated with me, and I now use it with the cadets. But I got to give Mike Coffey this credit. So I tell the cadets, I love them, and I do. But there's a group of people that I love more than them. And those are the enlisted men and women who will no doubt lay down their lives executing their orders. With that love comes awesome responsibility and an obligation as a commission officer that you take freely without uh, mental reservation or purpose of evasion. They take it freely. Lean into it and embrace it. And that every day that you look in that mirror before you shave your face, because you should shave if it, if it applies to you, you just ask yourself one simple question. Have I given my all? Have I given my all? Just ask yourself that every, hell, I ask myself that shit every morning. Excuse my French. And I think those are the sort of tenets that kind of govern us as leaders, man, to keep us in check. I also tell the uh, lieutenants or the cadets, I told them the other day, they're all worried about making mistakes. Every one of them. Hell, aren't we all, right? I tell them, look, man, don't aspire to live a life mistake-free. Aspire to live a life guilt-free. Like, there's a difference, man. There's liberation in living a life guilt-free. Mistakes are going to come. I made a couple this morning, <laughs> you know? But aspire to live a life guilt-free, man. Don't get wrapped up around your mistakes. In my opinion, you should lead from what's inside your chest, not what's on it. What's on your chest is very apparent. Lieutenant, you outrank me. But what's inside that damn chest? That's what your soldiers want to see. They want to see your love manifested and, and good, hard standards. 
leading from the front, being the first leader to exit the paratroop door. That's what the American soldiers want to see, and I will tell you that is what they deserve. Well, Sergeant Major, I want to thank you for teaching us about love and teaching us about the growth and development of an NCO and the opportunity that you provide junior leaders across the Army. Wow, thank you, my brother. Thanks for being here. Airborne. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.